Welcome to this episode of Ganada Advocates podcast series on green finance. I am Nikolai Lubrano, an associate at Ganada Advocates within the asset finance and environmental practices of the firm. And during this episode, we hope to delve into the nuances of renewable energy. To do this, we have none other than the director of the Institute of Sustainable Energy at the University of Malta, Professor Luciano Molestania. Professor Molestania holds a PhD in physics from the Missouri University of Science and Technology. In the USA, he spent 12 years working with the MEMC Electronic Materials and Director of Worldwide Labs. His major expertise is in the characterization, engineering, and synthesis of semiconductor and solar materials. And over the past 10 years, he has also worked on offshore solar and solar systems. Professor Luciana has a passion for heritage and environmental issues and was even the CEO of Heritage Malta and is currently council member of Dinlar Helwa, the National Trust of Malta, and is also the chairman of the COST, European Cooperation in Science and Technology, Scientific Committee, and has served on the boards of several local companies. So, Professor, it's uh, clear from your biography that you've very much gone through both the scientific as well as the heritage, and so you've managed the to... The environment. The environment, and you've managed to, to meld um, your, your two passions together. So, uh, for the benefit of our audience, including myself, um, may you please explain how you came to where you are today and sense how has your passion for heritage and environment translated into your profession? Well, um, as you just read, I spent 16 years actually total in the US. And after doing my PhD, I was working as director of uh, labs in an uh, industrial setup. So research, but industrial research, which was great and I loved it. But of course, Malta is my home. My family was still here. So at one point we decided to come back. I really came back to take on that role as CEO of Heritage Malta, but uh, to put it diplomatically, after three years working for government, you realize it's a totally different animal and it's a three-year, three-year contract. So after three years, we didn't renew the contract. And looking around, my options were basically either go back abroad and uh, Given that I was already looking at solar, most likely I would have ended up in Asia, China probably, or um, find something locally. And as it happened, the uh, University of Malta was expanding this institute, which uh, at the time existed. In fact, it was called Institute for Energy Technology. It's existed for a while. But the rector at the time realized that it's time to give it a boost because um, Renewable energy was starting, we're talking 12 years ago, so kind of when renewable energy started taking a, taking a push in Malta. Okay, and when we talk about renewable energy in Malta, we've pretty much been limited to to solar energy and at the residential, and then there are a few projects which have sprinkled around, around Malta. Do you, do you see this but going to another level? Not... Um, on land, we're limited. Yeah. I like to tell my students, Malta is a strange country, not in a bad way, because we're small, we're crowded, we have no water, we have no resources. You know, we're basically a very unusual country. Uh, we don't have space, we don't have hydroelectric, we don't have biomass. A lot of the countries which have a lot of renewable energy, it's really biomass, burning wood, but sustainably by growing new forests. We don't have that space, we don't have hydroelectric. Uh, we don't have space for wind turbines on land. So in reality, solar 
solar water heaters, heat pumps, waste to energy and waste to energy. We're doing as much probably as we can. There's not much more we can do. So yes, any growth on land is going to be primarily from solar, maybe solar water heaters and heat pumps, but primarily from solar. The big push will have to be offshore. I think the government, for that matter, I think everybody agrees that if we're going to really reach, if you think we're at 10%, so to reach full sustainability, we need to do 10 times as much. So we need a lot and a lot of space. And the only space we have is offshore. Yeah, but offshore is uh, sort of, I, I believe around 10, 15 years ago, it was already considered for um, uh, wind. wind turbines, but not floating wind turbines. No, it's a calbida. Fulfat, um, even though at the time I was in Heritage Malta, actually I had touched on with that project with a co- now a colleague of mine who, who was working on it. Um, Malta also has a disadvantage because we don't have shallow waters around us. So if you go to countries which have rivers, typically once where the river goes out, then you have a large shallow bank where you can put wind turbines. Uh, Building wind turbines on land is cheapest. Next cheapest is building them in shallow water and most expensive is deep water. So, of course, you're talking about finance here, so it is a more challenging problem. However, two things have changed. One is volume, as always, makes prices go down. And while floating wind turbines are a new concept and floating solar is really new, um, there's no doubt in my mind it's going to happen and it's going to increase in volume, which drives prices down. The other thing is, since the war in Ukraine, um, when I I started working on floating solar, actually about 12 years ago in reality and at the time everything was focused on price keep it cheap because it's useless making something that's going to cost twice as much as the power on land (coughs) however now the the tolerance for cost has increased because energy security has gained such a prominence i think um, many countries malta included i mean imagine if we're buying power at seven cents something from from local sources from the interconnector anywhere between zero and well 60 because right now it's quite expensive but when it's during the good times we are buying at six cents seven cents eight cents but imagine if we have to pay 10 cents or 12 cents in fact we're already paying 10 12 15 cents for land-based solar farms in malta but imagine we have to pay a little bit more but then you know that you don't have to worry about where is the gas coming from, mm-hmm. what's the fluctuation in prices of gas, because solar farms and wind farms, once they're there, they keep working for 20, 30 years. And you have control over and it. And you have complete control fully. locally. locally. Of course, we will have to introduce storage, energy storage, um, massive amounts of energy storage, because both wind and solar are intermittent. Exactly, and they potentially could produce more than is required at. Uh, well, uh, at you see it. Time. You see it right now. Like I have a system at home. In fact, I just upgraded it, and I put batteries on it too. And during the day, I produce more than I need. So then the battery absorbs that, and once the solar starts dying down, you start absorbing from the battery. So it's self-consumption in my case. And as a country, it's exactly the same. So the massive amount of solar, if we introduce massive amounts of solar during, you know, 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., 4 p.m., we'll be producing too much. 
uh, will have to have a large amount of storage, which could be batteries, could be pumped storage. There are various uh, technologies. Batteries will definitely be playing a role. And then you will release that when you need it. There is another uh, utility for batteries, which is to stabilize the grid. In fact, my understanding, and it's not my expertise, my understanding is it's already happening, or at least being planned, that they put large uh, battery banks in various places around Malta to buffer against power cuts or, or uh, instability in the grid. A hot topic. A very hot topic, and it <laughs> gained this, this, uh, this summer. But <clears throat> the amount of batteries is huge. So if you think, I need only batteries, you would literally need thousands of containers full of batteries. But while it sounds enormous, in reality, as an exercise uh, in one of my classes, I show them a picture of Dallemara, the power plant site, and how many containers would fit there. And actually, probably all the container, all the, all the batteries we would need could fit just in that one place. So while it's like, oh, I'll need 5,000 40-foot containers, which sounds like, where am I going to put them? But in reality, power stations are already very big, and we're already, then we have the Marissa one. Plus, like I said, in reality, you wouldn't put them all in one place. You would distribute them around the island, islands, and goats are included. And with, with because uh, I know there is a bit of maybe ignorance or controversy when it comes to, to solar panels and batteries, that when they reach the end expiration, of end of life, then then what's next? So I don't know if, you know, when you mention such a large amount of batteries, sort of, I'm sure red lights and, and uh, ears are going to, to perk up. There's, there's um, a good analogy. Right mm-hmm. now, the world has... 2 billion cars, 1.5 billion cars. Each one of those cars has a lead-acid battery. So there's, right now, a couple of billion lead-acid batteries in the world, and we almost completely recycle them. Now, again, economies of scale. If you have 2 billion of something, it's going to be cheap to, to recycle, and it's going to be advantageous to create the systems for recycling. Now, lithium-ion batteries are still in, the inf- in, it, in their infancy. They're still being, um, they're, they're quite mature, but they're still developing. The whole so, process is Yeah, so I'm sure we're going to reach a stage in the not-too-distant future where there'll be a lot of standardization, and there'll be an economic benefit to recycling them. And this is the same for solar panels, because they've been so, a, solar panels. Solar panels, if you look at a solar panel, the weight of it, there's an aluminum frame, which is recyclable. There's a glass panel in the front, which you cannot probably easily make glass again from it, but you could definitely crush it and use it in other, like, aggregate. And then the silicon itself um, probably would be crushed and used in things like stainless steel or with other metal processes. So in reality, very, very small part, which is not uh, recyclable. In, in Malta, the first solar panels were installed 12, 13, 14 years ago. So we haven't reached the end of life in large numbers. And end of life is being extended. 25, 30. And in reality, there will be an industry forming. It's already forming in, in Europe, in America, in Asia, where people are seeing an opportunity because if there's going to be a million panels in Germany that will be need to be recycled every year, like I said, I'm recycling a million of something, there's probably money to be made. Yeah. So I, I, I'm not worried about that part. Now, that said, recycling is good, but of course, 
again, as I always tell my students, we will always have an impact on the environment, even if we, re if we use only renewable energy. The only time we don't have impact is when we're dead. So we, we try to minimize, to minimize the impact. Yes. And uh, I understand that at the, at the Institute, and you in particular, your, your baby at the moment is, is a, a so, uh, floating solar. Offshore solar. Uh, can you go into a bit of detail and explain? Yeah, I mean, off actually floating solar started about 15 years ago in the world. So it's a quite very new topic. And it started on ponds, lakes. Now, we don't have any of those. So, of course, immediately we thought offshore. And about 12 years ago, we started applying. And about 10 years ago, we, get the f we got the first funding from MCST. And uh, actually, um, we launched the first offshore solar system in the world, which was actually in Alet Markum, right outside Mat up there in that bay where the okay. interconnector is. Uh, it was even effect, it was even acknowledged by um, in, in a conference. Uh, OSIS conference, which just happened in, as it happened in Malta too. And, uh, and we designed the system after that. So we had three iterations of projects. And the system we designed, which we now patented to the design, is basically a modular system. Quite simple. Again, keep in mind that I come from industry. So uh, my thinking is always to create something that's practical. So our system is modular. Um, right now, we're thinking made of concrete. And they would be simple platforms, hexagonal. Uh, each one would be 40 to 50 square meters, so the size of a sizable room. You put about a few kilowatt of panels on each, but then you just hinge as many as you want together to form like a carpet of, um, of uh, panels. And you can increase it infinitely, so you can go megawatts, even gigawatts, if you want. And these are and this is currently being obviously you had the one which was in Matab, Matabere, but those were those were actually earlier designs. We designed it, then we tested prototypes, uh, both at university and actually since Malta currently doesn't have a wave tank, University of Malta is building one, but we don't have it. We actually tested it at Malta Film Studios in, in Rinella. Um, they gently allowed us to fit in between two movie shootings. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and uh, it worked, the design works. Now the plan is hopefully in the next 12 months we'll launch a startup, University of Malta startup. And the idea is um, we launch a full-size system, small full-size system, but to give confidence to the would-be investor or user that well, right now, yes, we have a design, we have wave tank tests, we have simulations, but of course it's much more convincing when you see a full-scale system working in a storm. And that's kind of what we want to show. Once that happens, uh, we're still defining the exact business model, but it could either be licensing or it could be um, local investors or foreign investors partnering or a new startup or the startup itself morphing into a, an operator of a farm. We haven't decided on that. What I can say is that the interest is huge, local and foreign. Um, foreign, I've had interest and talks with some of the biggest uh, power operators in, in the world. And they keep saying the same thing. I mean, they're not interested at this stage, but if you get to the TRL level 7-8, meaning you have something ready to operate, okay. they're very interested. They want a ready, a ready product. 
they want to invest in a farm. But even locally, I mean, uh, I'm sure you know better than I do that local companies, many of the local companies, they want to appear green, they want to, to be green, so they want to invest in solar farms. Yeah. There's very little where to invest. Yes. Um, this is, uh, falls in line with what you said about Malta being a, a funny or, or, or a strange a strange island. You know, uh, the hills, the, the cliffs, the wind, the waves... Um, so it'll be interesting to see how this solar, this floating solar farm deals with the wind and the waves uh, out in the open. But the, like I said, we have simulation, but we also have wave tank tests, which simulated uh, six meter waves, actually. Okay. And the performance was good. Our design is for Mediterranean-like conditions. So we're not designing for North Sea. In any case, we have um, high confidence that will work. And... Uh, Again, I mean, if you have uh, a system that works, there is a good op possibility that we will get people interested in building it. Um, right now, we already have had, for example, actually an interest from Asia, from an operator in Asia that's interested in using the design, European companies, even local Maltese companies. But again, I mean, in Malta, one thing we do lack is uh, companies or people willing to fund early stage kind of the venture capital, the true venture capital. So the model we're using is we fund, we're funded through research, but now the startup will be funded through university, multi-enterprise, more public funding. But then at that point, uh, it will be at the stage where uh, enough confidence, uh, no, exactly, they'll be, they'll be willing to take the plunge. So so this sol the solar farm, because uh, recently the prime minister um, brought to the forefront the potential of the EEZ. And since we're talking about a solar, a floating solar farm, we're not talking about a, a small space. Even for it to be vi viable from a financial perspective, we have to talk about a large space being taken up. You see this, not to mention, obviously, the political um, uh, consequences of, of this EEZ, you know, where we come with Italy and Libya and whatnot. Um, but you do you envisage a huge potential coming out of, of the EEZ? Yes, and in reality, while it has to be huge, uh, it's relatively huge in the sense that 10,000 square meters would give you, um, you know, which is two, two football fields, would give you one megawatt. So if you do 10 megawatts, you need 20 football fields. Now on land, there's no way you're going to find them, but in the sea, they'd be lost. So it's a very small drop in the in the uh, Maltese territorial waters. So in reality for solar um, it's probably less critical because we can actually be closer to shore. Uh, solar is less intrusive vis uh, visually plus um, our design actually is for the system to work in 50 meters plus water meaning it can be in relatively shallow water but not extremely shallow. Wind, on the other hand, will require more of that because uh, if you go to these massive wind turbines, which are a marvel of engineering, each one of them now is like 15 megawatts. Uh, each wind turbine is one and a half times the size of Porto Maso. The blade is the size of, of a football field. You know, it's, it's, uh, they're immense, immense objects. And because they're so, so massive, if they're in the direction of the wind installed in a line, the distance between them needs to be on the order of like a kilometer so that 
one doesn't affect the, the wind of the next one. So wind turbines, while each one is massive, they need to be quite spaced. In fact, one interesting uh, proposal is to use, one interesting proposal is to use the space between them then to put solar farms and use the same cable to land to bring the power. That's a, a, an efficient way of using, of using all the, the available space. And you mentioned as well f sort of potential financing and that you're getting a lot of uh, feelers, you could say, from, from international as well, uh, as well as local. Do you see, other than the Institute, sort of other people developing this kind of...? There are. There are uh, maybe three or four other groups, um, Holland, Norway. Um, we're a small community, so we all know each other. And like I said, some of them are even developing for different conditions, like uh, some of them are developing for North Sea. In fact, most of them are. So they're developing much more robust, read more expensive systems. Ours are being designed for Mediterranean Sea. Mediterranean meaning it could operate probably in the uh, Red Sea or, or in the um, you know, Saudi area or... or Closed, closer environments, but not like open Atlantic so or the Pacific. Fifteen-meter waves. So, for example, there is a company which is designing things that look a bit like uh, oil rigs, made of steel, and then you put panels on top, which, oh, in okay. my mind, so would be very expensive. But, but again, and there'll probably be a niche market or niche markets. In our case, our our target market is. Um, space-constrained islands, countries, and cities. So not just small countries like us, but even when you think of a large coastal city, if you want to install a solar farm, you're either going to go 100 kilometers inland because there's no space in the city, or you can go one kilometer offshore. So um, there's plenty of potential. And given, for example, just the Mediterranean, there's, what, 500 million people or something like that living on the shores of Mediterranean, yeah. And so far we haven't yet, there isn't yet available a solar farm which is working. No, in, working no, in no. There are, there are some prototypes. Uh, there is one company in Holland which has one, though they're very secretive, so it's very difficult to know uh, if they're really in open sea. In Norway, there is a company that does them in conjunction with oil, offshore oil rigs and things like that. But there's not one that's like a true operational to generate energy in, in, in volume, okay. not in small amounts. So as the Institute, how far away do you, do you feel? Well, that? if we get um, to the startup phase this year, by next year, we would, 2024, 2025, we'd launch the uh, full-size prototype. And, uh, well, once that happens... As soon as you start building time with that, then you would immediately start, uh, no doubt, getting interest, but also looking for interest, both for, like I said, I mean, the model is not uh, defined whether it will be, um, most likely it would be a licensing model for us. So we would license the technology and the knowledge we learned to, to a big operator. But it could also be a partnership or a spin-off or something else. Something else. And... Uh, I mean, um, it's not an, uh, all the big operators in the world are looking at this now, whether it's um, 
what's it called, uh, Statoil, now it's called something else from Norway or, or um, NL in Italy. And we've been speaking to all these people and companies in India and companies in China. So there is plenty of potential takers. I have no doubt that once we get to the point where we've shown it working, uh, the idea will take off. Um, so it's a matter of when. And there's also EU funds because there's EU funds for uh, demonstration projects for companies. So the risk would be even lowered where, for example, the EU would fund 30 or 40 or 50 percent of the capital costs. So if you are going to have a six, seven, eight, nine percent return without that, with that, you're going to go in well into double digits, which makes it very attractive as a risky, a bit riskier because it's the first one but uh, very attractive. But being the first one uh, has will have its benefits, obviously. Because I, I recall, um, I'm not sure if it was Medavia, or I can't recall the company name, but they had first in, in installed a, uh, a solar farm on land, on, on above the, on the warehouses roofs, and yes, the roofs. Yes. And they were one of the, fe- the leaders. Yes, so even the feed-in tariff rate that they got was the most beneficial. They're the biggest time. one. They were the biggest one when they installed it. Too. Exactly. Now there are several, uh, between one and five megawatts uh, in Malta. And now it, you can still get the benefit because it's actually done by tender. So you can apply and say, I want 14 cents. Now, if you're lucky, there aren't people who bid lower. But if... But so, yeah, there are people still getting advantageous feed-in tariffs, but I think, I haven't looked, but I think they're probably in the 12, 13 cents now or something like that. And hopefully we'll see the market for energy distribution expand because currently it's, uh, there's a derogation where, a legal derogation where energy cannot be distributed other than the, the government. Yeah, it, what would be good, uh, of course, it has to be built, and I'm not sure how it will work because obviously the infrastructure is still owned by Enamalta. So I'm hoping we're not going to have other companies digging all Malta to run cables. But assuming that what it will entail will be Enamalta having to sell the service to other companies, then it, what would be good would be, for example, for a solar farm to be able to sell directly to... Consumers. Uh, to consumers. So to be that your own house will be run completely on... Or a business. Like uh, if a business wants to say, I'm buying all my power from a renewable mm-hmm. source. And then there's also energy communities, which... which uh, yes. Is a, a developing In area. fact, there's going to be a conference soon, I think. I was invited just this week uh, for co-ops too. Energy co-ops. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a movement... But the, the the same derogation is what stops it. So whilst there is directive, European directives coming about, and in fact we had a, a, a podcast with friends of the earth on this very matter, until this derogation is removed, which is, I believe it runs to 2027, the co-op or the energy community will still have to sell back its, its, uh, its energy. And um, hopefully there'll be in the future an independence. And when this derogation expires, then it will not be renewed. No, and then we'll have a bit of independence. In reality, um, you know, obviously it's not my area of expertise, the grid and uh, all that. But I would be cautious about, you know, how to go about it. Because, of course, it can also lead to price increases. Total liberalization could be dangerous. I mean, we saw what happened in Europe where... Some consumers were seeing their prices triple. 
uh, at the same time um, opening the opportunity for things like co-ops and um, farms to sell directly to consumers um, why not for that matter um, even charging stations for EVs to be able to sell directly to consumers without a lot of red tape agreed agreed but the the purpose of a co-op would be to make your own investment and then take the return in the energy so I hope and like you <laughs> I hope that it wouldn't affect the energy increase but the idea would be more d- more to just take ownership and have security over what your electricity is and shouldn't have an effect on the on problem I'm is always space yes so um, I know they made a request to the government to find them space so hopefully they will find some places but in reality uh, that's always the the problem I mean about every few weeks I get somebody saying, uh, do you know of some land or do you know of some farm that's up for sale from a comp- lo- many of the local companies? Every few weeks, you know, I mean, some, and the, the answer is always the same, which is there's very little out there that's not already taken. Mm. And then you cannot take up agricultural space? Yeah, so rooftops, um, quarries, but how many of those are left now that haven't already been or they're already in the process of being exploited. Okay. Um, I just had a final um, question, and maybe it can be used as a, as a conclusion. Um, you know, we've always heard about green finance and uh, a very much focus on green and the, the land aspect of, of uh, renewables. And now with so floating solar farms, and obviously there's the, the traditional, if we can call it, the wind farms. Do you see that? Uh, a shift towards blue economy, what's now because of the and blue energy. Uh, yes, and in fact, the two are sort of overlapping a lot. Um, definitely for wind and solar. Um, but again, keep in mind that once you build infrastructure, for example, floating solar, we're building platforms at sea. So we have contemplated and already thought about things like there could be synergies with obvious things like desalination or with, for that matter, leisure activities. So if you're going to build platforms, you can literally build platforms to have, uh, you know, a restaurant or whatever you want. I mean, uh, so marinas, marinas or, or fish farms. Um, so in reality, the blue economy in Malta is the next frontier. It's already happening, but, but in reality is where we have the most potential for growth and where we actually have uh, assets, which is a lot of of, uh, of space, and uh, in energy is going to be the same. If we're going to have to produce ten times as much as we're doing today, that's the only place we can do it. The sea. The sea. The sea is the giver of life, as they say. Um, so, pro- Professor, thank you very much for your time here and for your all the interesting topics that we were able to discuss. And to the listeners, look out for for what uh, developments may happen in the near future. Hopefully, we'll get to see a prototype coming onto onto the sea and uh, huge developments coming from that. Um, Thank you, everyone, everyone, and look forward to the next next episode. Thanks for having me.